Philippians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, listen close, or perhaps someone sitting near you um, will share theirs with you. We're going to read the passage together uh, with one voice. It's on the screen for us, but I encourage you to keep your Bibles opened as well, your tablet, your mobile device, whatever form you may have the Bible on this morning or here with you, and um, have it at ready reference as we will be looking at different pieces of this passage as we begin to drill down into it. But lift your voices with me. Let's read together verses 1 to 11. Um, I trust that you can see this uh, clearly. Our, our projector is starting to lose its oomph, and uh, we need a, either a new bulb or a new projector altogether. I'm not sure. But lift your voices with me if you can. And uh, if you can't see the words and, and read them, then just maybe insert some word like hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah through it all or something so you feel like you're joining in, all right? Lift your voices with me. We have verses 1 to 11, and this is broken into two slides, uh, this passage. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of King Jesus, to all God's holy ones in King Jesus who are in Philippi, together with the overseers and ministers. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and King Jesus the Lord. I thank my God every time I think of you. I always pray with joy whenever I pray for you all because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Of this I'm convinced, the one who began a good work in you will thoroughly complete it by the day of King Jesus. It's right for me to think this way about all of you. You have me in your hearts, here in prison as I am, working to defend and bolster up the gospel. You are my partners in grace, all of you. Yes, God can bear witness how much I'm longing for all of you with the deep love of King Jesus. And this is what I'm praying, that your love may overflow still more and more in knowledge and in all astute wisdom, then you will be able to tell the difference between good and evil and be sincere and faultless on the day of Messiah, filled to overflowing with the fruit of right living, fruit that comes through King Jesus to God's glory and praise. Paul's letter to the Philippians is a letter of friendship. And I think that becomes quite evident even in this passage that we've just read. It's a letter of friendship. It's marked by a warm tone of suggestive uh, closeness and intimacy. It, it suggests positive relationship to us. By a strong sense of close fellowship in the gospel. And by reciprocity in relationships. Some believe that Paul's uh, letter to the Philippians expresses almost a, 
an affection for them that would say to us that the Philippians were, were some of his favorites. There is such warmth there. And the letter opens with a report of his own prayer, which becomes for all subsequent readers, for you and me here today, for us, it becomes a call to prayer on our own account. As we think through Paul's praying, we are nudged into prayer ourselves for one another, for the church, for the, for the churches we know. And this opening prayer is a meditation on the theme of something we've already alluded to, the theme of koinonia. Would you say that word again with me? Koinonia. This prayer. The theme of koinonia, fellowship, although fellowship really isn't a strong enough word to describe it. And agape love. We begin to see here a picture of what prayer is to be like in God's new world. And Paul models it for us. It focuses on the mutual life, the shared common life of Messiah's family. It looks for a growth toward maturity. Christian maturity, yes, but for Paul, this also includes human maturity. He didn't separate the two. As in the Messiah, we learn to think in new ways. You may remember that last week we concluded with that thought. Thinking can be joyful and joy can be thoughtful. Paul in Philippians is showing us how the people of God, the people of Christ, you and me, are to think in new ways. And he uses a verb here which can be translated, in fact, to have a certain mindset. When he refers to this thinking in new ways, he's really talking about laying hold of a whole new mindset. And this is how he describes the way gospel-oriented believers should think. And supremely of the way Christ Messiah thinks Himself. And this is to be our pattern. It's a pattern for His people to follow, as we'll get into in chapter 2. And we discover that this sustains us in how to live in new ways, particularly in true communion, koinonia, and before a watching world, living out loud the gospel of the kingdom before the watching world. Salvation, the dynamic of our life being perfected in Christ, is to be an ongoing experience that while it may be personal, it's not individual, but shared 
in community among fellow believing Christ followers. I want that to sink in because it really rubs up against the culture that you and I live in. We live in a very individualistic society and culture, don't we? Even to the point that for us as Christ followers, we treat our faith as a very individualistic thing. We call it personal. And that's fine. Faith is to be personal. But faith is not to be individualistic. There's a difference. This faith that is ours is a shared faith. And it is a faith that is in community together. We grow in this faith in community together. That's why these times of gathering are so important. And other times that we would gather. We grow in Christ together, not individually. I recently heard of a, uh, a, a, a person who was asked what, what their faith was. What kind of, and they said, well, I've, I've taken a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and I've, I've basically uh, come up with a faith that if, if their name was my name, David, it would basically be called Davidism. And many, we, we chuckle at that, but the reality is, is that that is the faith of many in our world. It is a faith that is individualistic, and it is a faith that each individual who holds to that has pieced together of their own. Because they, they, they do not wish to in any way give themselves to any kind of community form of growing in faith together. Faith is my own personal thing, we call it, but really what we're saying is it's my own individualistic thing. Well, Paul comes up against that in this letter of the Philippians. Not because the Philippians thought this way, because they didn't. This, in fact, this whole individualistic thing would be very foreign to them. They would have no concept of it. Just as we, on the opposite side of the coin, have really no concept of community, communion, and koinonia together. Our faith is something that, yes, while it is personal, it is also something that is shared in community among fellow believing Christ followers. And we grow in community. It is not the church of me, myself, and I. And so on the way, as we journey, we discover a particular challenge. Paul had been, as you know, a pioneer missionary. He went to places that had never heard about Jesus before. And he was speaking and living in a way that by the time he left, people not only knew about Jesus, they had also come to know Jesus for themselves. To experience Jesus as a living, loving, and challenging presence. And this meant learning how to situate themselves 
with a backward look to the events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension. And at the same time, this meant keeping a forward look to the events to come. The return of Jesus. As we anticipate even in this season of Advent. The restoration of God's entire universe. The raising or transforming of His people to a new bodily life within that new world. Resurrection. And all this is is what is bubbling along under the surface of Paul's opening prayer. All of these things. Now, were there particular problems within the Philippian church? Some have thought so. Paul's stress on unity in this letter has led some to suggest that there must have been significant divisions. Actually, the only division that he mentions here uh, in contrast to other letters, like say his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians where he mentions all kinds of divisions right from the top. The only one he mentions here in this letter is the division between two particular women in the church. Yodia and Sintichi, as they're referred to in chapter 4. Paul's manner of communicating this admonition for unity is important. And I want you to notice it. The manner in which he communicates this admonition for unity. Because he does so by his own example of humility. He realizes that the most effective way to achieve and to keep unity is not to demand that everyone agree with us. But instead, to look out for the interests of others. And to refuse to claim for ourselves the privileges that rightfully belong to us. This is the path that Paul follows in the first two verses of Philippians. You'll notice that Paul does not do something as he opens this letter to the Philippians that he often does in his other letters. He doesn't mention anything about his apostleship in Christ Jesus. Often in other letters, he introduces the letter with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, appointed by Christ Jesus. And his reason for doing that was not one of arrogance. It was one of defense. One of apologetic, really, of saying, because there were many voices refuting the fact that Paul was even an apostle, so Paul would introduce himself this way as a solid apologetic towards the fact that he was indeed an apostle appointed by Christ Jesus, having a face-to-face encounter with Christ Jesus, as we know from the book of Acts on the road to Damascus. But he doesn't do that here. He follows instead this pathway of humility in the first two verses of Philippians. And his example provides us the challenge to seek unity through a genuine concern for the interests of others 
and considering others ahead of ourselves. Wow, isn't that a huge pushback against our own culture, especially after, you know, we're still fresh out of this pandemic. And boy, did we ever see a lot of my rights through that, didn't we? Paul says, be unified. Nurture unity. Keep the spirit of unity among you. And how do you do that? Through humility. How do you do that? Through considering others before yourself. Through putting the needs and interests of others ahead of your own. And, and, and what he's doing in these first two verses is he's foreshadowing for us something he's going to unfold and unpack in an even more full-blown way in chapter 2 when he begins to point to Christ who though God humbled Himself and became human. One might suppose that Paul's exhortations to, to joy and his long, rather labored interpretation of what is going on with himself being in prison had something to do with the possibility that the Philippians were now becoming disheartened because Paul was in prison. So our, our leader, our pastor, if you will, is in prison. What are we to do now? Perhaps they were supposing that if the authorities had now got a hold of Paul, holding him where they wanted him, maybe that meant the entire movement was going to come to nothing. After all, among this newly planted church in, the, in Philippi, quite possibly the Philippians were anxious about Epaphroditus who had gone to Paul because they had sent him as an ambassador of the church, they sent Epaphroditus to Paul in prison in Ephesus with a substantial gift of money. And they're concerned that maybe because he'd been gone for some time, he had perhaps become sick. And so they needed reassuring that Epaphroditus had indeed fulfilled his mission and was now returning home. So with all of that, yes, the Philippians were clearly anxious. And Paul addresses that even in our Scripture reading this morning. Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing but in all things. They were anxious, but their anxiety on these accounts was really nothing more than common human worry that, that we all experience when faced with the uncertainties of life. But the immediate reason for the letter, along with the reassurance about Epaphroditus, was to thank the Philippians for the financial gift that they had sent. And this becomes explicit in chapter 4 but is clearly underneath the whole letter. And in chapter 1 in particular. Why did Paul need money? Prisoners in Paul's world did not get fed by the authorities. I told you last week that 
prison in Paul's world, you'd be put in prison and you could often be forgotten. You'd be left to die there because they'd put you there and then forget that you were even there. They'd put you there because they didn't know what else to do with you. So they'd put you there, forget about you, and you could often die there unless you had loved ones who knew you were there and who would make a point of be ensuring that you were cared for. And that's what the Philippians are doing here for Paul. They were dependent upon others, prisoners were, to bring them the necessities of life. Nor did Paul receive payment for his apostolic work. He earned his own living by working with his own hands in the leather goods trade. Obviously, he could not do that in prison. So he received gifts from the Philippian church towards the ongoing expenses of his missionary work. However, as we all know, when money changes hands, suspicions can be aroused. Yeah? And people who pay a piper can sometimes try to insist on the tunes that are to be played. Hello? We, this, we, we can relate with this even in our day. Paul doesn't seem to be worried about this, though, in the case of Philippi. He was just grateful that despite their poverty, because the Philippians were not rich, they were not wealthy, but despite their poverty, which may have been caused, in fact, by losing their jobs for being known as Jesus followers, even so, they were determined to support Him as best they could. And we'll come back to this whole question of money later on as we come into chapter 4. But look a little closer with me to his opening greeting in verses 1 and 2, will you? Paul and Timothy, servants, slaves of Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, the church leaders and ministers, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The letter's opening greeting is, in one way, very conventional. It followed the common pattern that many in Paul's day would write letters by. Sender, recipient, greetings. But in another way, Paul's opening greeting is full of notable hints of things to come. Paul's salutation here stands out. Because as I said a moment ago, he doesn't mention his apostolic status. And he uses Timothy as the co-sender of the letter. Though later he's going to include a note of recommendation of Timothy to the Philippians because he is going on ahead. And he describes the two of them, watch this, he describes the two of them as slaves of Messiah Jesus. As in all Paul's letters, King Jesus is central and crucial. And like messengers coming from some great landowner, because slavery, we, we don't 
really get this because we don't have the concept of slavery that, that Paul was very familiar with in his day. In Paul's day, the idea of slavery was very much a part of the fabric of the culture. There were many, in fact, in Paul's churches, in the church in Philippi, who probably had slaves. And they owned those slaves, and the freedom of those slaves was determined by their owner. So Paul introduces he and Timothy as slaves of Messiah Jesus. King Jesus is central and crucial, as he is in all of Paul's letters. And so, like messengers, like slaves coming from some great landowner, slave owner, they introduce themselves by naming their owner, their master. And of course, the Philippians would understand that this slavery was a redefined and transfigured slavery because of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy were not slaves in the first century social sense, but since the letter hinges on Jesus Himself taking what? Taking the form of a slave and dying the death of a slave, we should certainly reckon that this self-designation was itself designed to sound quite shocking. It was not just a manner of speaking. It was designed to make people think. Paul was wanting to make the Philippians think. He was challenging their thinking. He was showing them, as we've already said, how to think. What is going on? What are they talking about? Slaves of Messiah Jesus. Why is Paul saying this? And by introducing this idea of slavery and the term servant, Paul foreshadows here his forthcoming magnificent proclamation of Jesus as both God and human. And his self-giving love, dying the death of a slave, by contrast, Paul designates the Philippians themselves with their dual identity and status. They are saints. Did you see that? Grace and peace to you, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Saints in Messiah Jesus and also in Philippi. And that nicely sums up for us the challenge of this letter for them and for us. What does it mean to be saints? Do you desire to be a saint, loved ones? If we live this life and die and pass on to the next life which God has intended for us, and we do so without having any idea or desire or yearning to be His saints, then we've missed something, something significant. 
What does it mean to be saints, God's holy ones, in any case? And what does it mean to be the Messiah's holy people in that particular case, in Philippi, or anywhere else in our particular place, here in 2022? What does it mean to be His saints? And that challenges the Philippians. These statements Paul makes, even just in the first two verses. Slaves of Christ Jesus, servant to us, the saints. What is is Paul getting at here? How are we to be the saints of God in our context and live as saints of Christ Jesus in the public life that we live before the watching world? How's that to be worked out? How are we to live out loud this Gospel? The word saints itself is a Jewish term for God's holy people. And it's applied variously to Israel as a whole. Paul's use of this designation, it echoes, it recalls the Old Testament imagery of Israel as a people who had been set apart by God and who were to demonstrate their special conduct, or their special status rather, by their conduct. How they lived. And Paul appropriates this as so much more. He sees the vocation to be saints, God's holy people, reborn and transfigured through Jesus as Israel's Messiah. In the midst of a culture that understood well the the fabric and the idea of slavery, the Messiah comes and He redefines all of this. as He becomes our Master, our King, our Lord. In fact, that term Lord, Kyrios, was often how they referred to to their masters, their slave owners. So you see how Paul is using this whole idea to give us an understanding of who we are to be in Christ Jesus and who He is to us and who He modeled Himself for us to be. And Paul, in turn, is modeling this to the Philippians and to us. And then Paul uses this phrase, which he is so well known for, in Christ. Would you say that with me? In Christ. Say it again. In Christ. Or say it this way. In Messiah. In Messiah. Paul uses this expression over and over and over and over again. And variants of it. In Him. In Messiah. In Jesus. In Christ. He uses it. It recurs frequently, especially in this letter to the Philippians. Sometimes it is the natural complement to a verb, as in phrases like, to rejoice or be confident in Christ. Or on the basis of Jesus and who He is. At other times, Paul uses it 
expressly in the way in which the conduct of Christ followers ought to be determined by the fact that Christ is the Lord of His people and requires a certain kind of behavior from them and conduct and way of thinking and worldview and mindset. And so Paul, he packs all of this into in Christ. Because you are in Christ, you are to be this kind of people. You are to live in this kind of way. And it's not just an empty mandate. It's look at Christ Himself. He modeled this very thing for us. Look at me, Paul says. And again, it wasn't an arrogant boast. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul was in no way saying he'd reached it or accomplished it or figured it all out. He was just saying, my passionate pursuit is to be in Christ. And as I follow Him, follow me. Look at me as a a model of what this would look like. And moreover, the phrase indicates a close relationship in Christ, in Messiah a close relationship with King Jesus through their trusting faith in Him. It speaks of a deep participatory union. Even as we expressed just a moment ago in sharing the Eucharist together, we participate. It's a union that is participatory with Christ. Think, think for instance, of Paul's whole grand metaphor of the body. The body of Christ. You are part of the body. That's the kind of deep union and intimacy that is being being scratched at here. This idea of close relationship to Christ. It also emerges when Paul writes about knowing Christ by participating in His sufferings and in the power of His resurrection, both in the present and after physical death. As he gets into in chapter 3. Plainly, he is referring not simply to knowing about somebody, but he's referring to personal experience in which he shares the actual experiences of Jesus. And loved ones, this is to be the experience of all Christ followers. Not just Paul. Paul's not saying, I'm the exception. Paul is saying, look at me because this is the way it's to be for all of us. So there's an intense sense of personal relationship with Christ in this letter. A warm friendship with the Philippians and an intense relationship with Christ Himself. For Paul, existence as a Christ follower is not to be understood simply in terms of belief in a set of doctrines or as a way of life, although these are certainly integral parts of it. It is also for Paul a spiritual experience of relationship 
with God through Christ. And one of the primary contributions of Philippians to biblical theology is the stress laid on this relational union. Even more unusual is Paul's mention of church officials in his opening words here. Overseers, deacons. He refers to the local leaders of the community. Often rendered bishops or overseers or or deacons. He doesn't do that in all of his letters. Philippians is very exceptional that way. Theologically, it's interesting to see here the assumption of a church leadership structure that becomes more evident in Paul's pastoral letters to Timothy and Titus. And then look at the greeting he gives them. Grace and peace. Would you say that with me? Grace and peace. That that ought to be something we pick up as a habit ourselves. Grace and peace to you. St. Francis used to say, grace, peace, and all good things be yours in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace. He combines, Paul does, in this greeting, standard Greek and Hebrew expressions are packed into this. We think of shalom, of course, peace. But shalom means a whole lot more than, than, you know, I hope you're feeling good. Shalom speaks of a wholeness, a completeness, grace and peace. This grace and peace, it's not just a pious wish. It it, it is actually a prayer. As he says this, as he greets them in this way, he's praying. It's prayer. And indeed, it is a blessing spoken upon them since Paul invokes these qualities upon them as gifts from God Himself. So when Paul said to them, grace and peace, he was invoking the fullness of these very things upon the Philippians. That is what prayer does. Prayer invokes the gifts of God upon the people of God. It calls forth it draws down God's gift upon God's gifts upon God's people. Part of Paul's work in slave service to his Lord is to be a grace and peace person. One through whose work and teaching and especially prayer, the blessing of God Himself comes upon people. Wouldn't that be amazing? for us to pursue together. That we would be a grace and peace people. That that everywhere we go and every life we come into contact with, our very lives as grace and peace people would invoke the grace and peace of God upon those we are interacting with. Our very lives would be a prayer, a living prayer for them. Whether it be our coworker, our next door neighbor, 
the, the, the one we sit next to on the bus, uh, in our commute, whatever, wherever and whoever, that we would be a grace and peace people. Not as a pious title. Not as an empty greeting. But that invokes the very grace of God and peace of God upon those that we interact with. Beloved, I suspect we underestimate the power of such blessings. Often we see them as mere pious wishes. You know, just a way to end the service, say goodbye, or whatever. Not so. Not so. In Christ and by the Holy Spirit, God calls people to be and to speak effective signs of what He wants to do in the world and in people's lives. We are to be signs of His grace and peace. Signals of God's grace and peace in the world. So this blessing comes from God the Father. A designation for God familiar from the Old Testament. Just as the idea of Israel or the king as God's son is found there as well. However, the explosion of the early Christian reference to God as father was unprecedented. It had never happened before. And so too was the idea that the divine source of blessing comes simultaneously from God the Father and Israel's Messiah. And, through the, and, and, and though this is a, a, a very natural extension of various messianic hopes in various messianic passages in the Psalms and Isaiah, God is going to bless the world through Messiah. Grace and peace have come in Messiah. And as the people of Messiah, we are to live out loud that grace and peace. We are to be and to speak that grace and peace through our very lives. And these two things are so tightly joined together. Paul's formula has folded Jesus inside a characteristic Jewish monotheistic expression so that these two are not two different sources. God the Father and Jesus. But they're the same single though differentiated source of the blessing He invokes. Grace and peace. And as the next paragraph carries on, it becomes clear that the way the blessing is going to work is through the inner operation of God in the lives of His people. In other words, though the Holy Spirit is not explicitly mentioned here, the Holy Spirit is implied. 
And the Holy Spirit is going to do a work of grace and peace in you, Paul is saying to the Philippians. And all that that entails. And then by the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, you are going to be a people of grace and peace. That live out loud that grace and peace before a watching world. So this opening greeting enfolds Paul and the Philippian church in the outward moving spiral of grace. God comes in the Gospel to plant the seeds which grow and flourish as a single God-derived bundle of life. And when God blesses with grace and peace, this is never a matter of pouring fresh water into a stagnant pond. Rather, God gives His blessing to His people so that through them He may bless others. So that through them He may offer His cheerful good news gospel shaped challenge to the wider world. So this this. This opening blessing, grace and peace, it it looks ahead and it points to the wider concern of the letter that Paul's going to get into. Finally, look with me at Paul's prayer. And we'll conclude with this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because you of your partnership in the Gospel from the first day until now. And he moves through these nine verses. Verses 3 to 11. He moves through a sequence of thought and prayer. A prayer of thanksgiving for the koinonia that he and the Philippians share. Verses 3 to 8. A prayer of intercession that their own love and faith will grow more and more for the advancement of the gospel. A prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of intercession, verses 9 to 11. And so, verse 3 assures the Philippians of Paul's constant prayer I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. For you all, making my prayer with joy. Would you think about that with me for a moment? Think with me about this whole idea of constant prayer. Say that with me, will you? Constant prayer. Say it again. Constant prayer. From Paul's Jewish background, it is probable that he continued his lifelong habit of at least three set prayer times a day. And if you frame the day that way, it's probable that the concerns that you mention each time will recur to your mind at other times as well. Paul assumes what most of us have to work hard to attain. 
a life in which the presence of God deliberately evoked and invoked at certain times becomes a conscious reality for the rest of the time. So we do not only know His presence in those times, even like this time here this morning, but the presence of God invoked here, even as we leave this place today, is a conscious presence with us throughout the balance of this day. We are conscious of His presence always, and we are involved in a conversation that never ends with Him. Constant prayer. That's what Paul's getting at. The conversation that never ends. In that consciousness for Paul, the church in Philippi was never far away. They were always in his constant ongoing prayers. What would that look like in you and me? Constant prayer. 